Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Next Track. This is number seven. We're going to be talking about genres, a little history about genres, and about why genres exist, why they might be useful, why they are useful. But first, we wanted to get into a rumor that just won't quit, and that is that Apple plans to remove the headphone jack from the next version of the iPhone. This is a rumor that keeps coming back every couple of months. Uh, I wrote something on Macworld about this last year in December. The, the rumor suggests that in order to make the iPhone thinner, Apple needs to remove the headphone jack and that they'll be replacing it with presumably earbuds that use a lightning connector. The lightning connector is the cable you use that connects to your Mac. If you sync a device, it's a cable used to charge a device. And a lot of people have said that removing the headphone jack would save thickness. Now, of course, the iPod Touch, considerably thinner than the iPhone, has a headphone jack. The iPod Nano, considerably thinner than the iPod Touch, also has a headphone jack. All right. So if saving internal space on the phone isn't enough justification for removing the headphone jack, what might be? I mean, why does this rumor persist? Well, I think the first the rumor first started around a year ago when Apple, I think it was at last year's WWDC, that Apple announced a new audio framework for outputting digital audio through the lightning port. And this allows high-end headphones to get the audio digitally, to have an onboard DAC or digital analog converter, um, and to do the processing in the headphone. Now, I, th I believe there are two headphone models currently in existence that do this. So the, two. Two. There are two. two. Yeah. When, when I wrote the Macworld article, there was one and one that was due out soon. And I think there's a second. These are high-end expensive headphones. They're not designed for everyday use. The, the idea of having an onboard DAC is to make the sound better than what the iPhone can provide through the DAC chip that's in the iPhone, which is already pretty good. So you are looking at an audiophile device, a high-priced device. And if the logic is just to have an onboard DAC in the headphones, then it's only a handful of people who would be interested in this. Yeah, plus I'm not sure I'd want to use uh, audiophile headphones to make phone calls all the time. But anyway, let's, let's play the parlor game, and let's say Apple does pull the jack from the phone and gives you uh, lightning connector headphones and, and probably some kind of dongle or adapter to use with other headphones. Is that possible? Well, I don't know. So the rumor keeps coming up. And I mean, I mean, there was a valid question when they came out with this uh, possibility to get the digital audio through the lightning port. Now, you mentioned that you would have to have a dongle. Um, so let's bear in mind that there are hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of headphones around the world that use this 3.5 millimeter headphone jack. You'd have to buy a dongle that you would have to buy either from Apple or for a company who's licensed it from Apple. This would be a product on which Apple would make money. They would be charging for these licenses. Of course, Chinese companies will make knockoffs, but this is a device that is probably going to have to have some kind of a chip inside it. So it's not going to be cheap, but 20 bucks, 25 bucks. And so it's going to have to be one of those things that will allow me to not only plug my headphones in so I can listen to the phone, talk on the phone, but what if I also want to charge at the same time? Well, that's a good question. So so I've got a 12-inch MacBook, and I've got one of these devices that I'm holding up for Doug. It's the thing that has a USB-C plug, and the other end, there are three 
connectors. One is a USB-C, one is a USB-A, so that's a normal flat, and the other is the HDMI. And this is the only way that you can charge your MacBook while connecting USB peripheral. Right. So if you need the same thing, if you need a dongle with two outputs to be able to charge and use your headset, then it's a problem. Now, I, I actually use my headset with my iPhone pretty much any time I make a phone call if I'm in my office. And so sometimes my iPhone does need to charge while I'm talking on the phone. And sometimes I have very long phone calls for, for my work. Um, so you would need something like that. So potentially you've got two different kinds of dongles. You've got the straight uh, lightning to headphone jack dongle, and then you've got the double lightning to lightning or headphone jack dongle. All right. So that all sounds really inelegant also. It does. I mean, not just... Yeah. So the next best thing... Now, what I like to say is when back in the day when they pulled the floppy drive, people complained that that was very disruptive. and But it actually wasn't because they gave us an alternative. They also, when they pulled the floppy drive, they gave us a USB bus and they gave us iMacs with CD burners. So they went to the next thing. If this headphone port removal is true then it would seem to me that Apple would want to move on to the next thing, and that can only be wireless. Well, wireless is an option. Now, the problem with wireless is that these are headphones that need to be charged, and wireless earbuds are not very good. They don't have a lot of room for batteries. They, you, you put the two earbuds in your ears and you hang a wire over your neck. They're easy oh, to they lose. They stick out of your head like Frankenstein's uh, <laughs> neck bolts. I mean, they, stick, they really are huge contrivances. Yeah. They're really big. Yeah. Now, of course, Apple owns Beats that makes headphones, and some of them are wireless. I, I was going to try and find some numbers on wireless versus wired, on earbuds versus headphones and all, and it's not very easy to find that. And, and I can't see Apple changing this connector just to sell their own headphones. Right. That, that's a pretty aggressive move. I, yeah, there just isn't enough justification all around that I can detect that unless there's something super amazing in the works, it's just going to blow us away when they announce it. You need to remember that if they do come up with something like this, you need to think about how these headphones connect in two different situations. One is to an iOS device. So they have a lightning connector and they connect and they get battery power um, from the device because I'm assuming that the lightning connector would require battery power to control the headphones. I'm not sure. The two existing models that have them have onboard DACs, and they do use batteries. It would also mean that I couldn't use those headphones with my MacBook exactly. or my iMac. Exactly. Like right. And you couldn't use it with any other non-Apple device, be it an Android phone or a stereo, a home stereo. You'd still end up having to get their proprietary phones, whatever those turn out to be, and another set to use with your other Mac devices, your other Apple devices. Or, or another dongle to connect to your stereo or to your Mac, yes. which just doesn't make Makes sense. It's just inelegant all around. Yeah, it is. It's like and no matter where we steer this thing, we always end up driving down inelegant boulevard. It's just it's just not. <laughs> well, again, this is just a rumor, and we, we thought we'd bring it up because it obviously concerns a lot of our listeners and all of us, and we're both sitting here with headphones on, so it would make life difficult for everyone. So, for today's main topic, we wanted to talk about genres. The genre of music is a system of taxonomy. We had to look up that word, by the way. Um, similar to the Dewey Decimal System, which you know in the library. And while we didn't look up the actual history of how musical genres were applied, invented, and calculated, my guess is it comes from the, the logic of libraries. Um, genres were first created most likely for record stores and for radio stations, right? You know, I don't even remember using the word genre um, 
that's like a literary word. I mean, we'd use genre, but maybe only in an ironic sense or something. Usually we talked in terms of like musical style or categories. For instance, when I was in college working at the college radio station, we had four musical styles that the, the station played, folk, rock, jazz, and classical. And everything we played fit into one of those libraries. We didn't subdivide the, those libraries into sub-musical styles. It was you're either in one of those four categories or you're not. And then later when I worked at my fir the first professional radio station I worked at had what you might call a free-form format. And uh, the parameters of that station were that within a four-hour shift, you had to play so many rock songs, so many Motown songs, so many jazz fusion songs, so many folk songs. So you had to be educated on uh, on what categories the, the, the different artists fit into. You had to know about musical styles. But you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that very many people would actually organize their own record libraries at home by genre. You sure? Well, I mean, maybe a few <laughs> sections. I myself, I kept uh, classical separate from, from my rock music, which is what I listened to predominantly early on. Um, but I think for most people, they had a collection that was either too small or too homogeneous to even bother separating it into categories. Yeah. If you remember back in the days when you would go into a record store, note the air quotes there, you would browse all over the place unless you were just fixated on one type of music. So you would fluidly move from, say, the rock to the folk to the jazz section because it would be one aisle after another. And maybe for a few months, the rock section stretched out into the next aisle and then they got a lot of jazz and, and they shrunk the rock section. So the only importance of the genre labels in a record store was for you to narrow in on something when you were looking for a specific type of music, assuming that it fit in the genre that you were thinking of. Right, and that's pretty much the only time you saw a reference to genres or musical styles was uh, in the record store or in music reviews or that sort of thing, but not really in your own home. So digital comes along, and digital music files have metadata, and from the beginning, um, the genre tag has always been a part of the ID3 spec. Uh, ID3 is the, the initial... Uh, standard for tagging digital audio files. Right, and we were looking at the original version, which... Um, gave you 125 bytes of information. So you could have 30 pieces of text for the song name, for the album, for the artist, for comments, four for year, and one, one byte for genre. And that was a number that corresponded with a predefined set of genres names that had been created at the time. Um, it's a pretty outlandish list, actually. Uh, we were looking at it this morning and kind of uh, kind of giggling about it. If you ever used Winamp, you may be familiar with... Uh, with some of the genre names that are in there. They start off fairly um, commonplace, like there's blues and classic rock and jazz, and then they divert into bizarre, it seems idiosyncratic, it seems, I don't know what consortium, in other words, I don't know what consortium authorized these, but it really seems like a bunch of guys sitting around in a frat house saying, these are, this is what I call my songs, so they just added them to the list. You've got things in there called pranks, uh, fast fusion, which I've never understood why it's in there, with no slow fusion or medium fusion, whatever. Booty bass, porn groove, slow jam. These, I mean, these are, uh, they're probably legitimate genres, I suppose, but... Duet. When, and now, when I first saw genres uh, that could, when I first saw that genres could be part of, um, of your ID3 tags, I didn't care at all. I, it's like, I knew what genre, 
Just like when I walked into a record store and I knew what genre I was looking for, I didn't need to bring, come home and, and label all my tracks as being a part of a genre. So I remember in the early days of MP3, I just, w I just ignored those things. Yeah, I think I started labeling pretty early on, at least between rock, jazz, and classical. Because I've been using the column browser in iTunes in Songs View for a very long time. So if you're in iTunes and you're looking at your music library and you click Songs, then you get a list of all the songs. If you press Command-B or choose View Show Column Browser, you get a list of columns at the top. And these columns are genre artists and albums. You can also add a composer's column. So it's sort of a natural way. If I wanted to look at classical music and find something to listen to, I would click on classical, and then I'd see the list of artists and maybe click an artist, and then I'd see the list of albums. And there's a logic to that. There is a drilling down. Um, but in the early days of digital, obviously, you didn't need it because we didn't have so much. When I had two or 3,000 tracks in my iTunes library, it didn't matter because, you know, I was still listening. Were, it was a homogenized library. It was, it was your library. You knew what everything was. You didn't need to identify it as being part of a particular subgenre. Right. But so the genres become useful um, when you use smart playlists. Say you want a smart playlist for all of your blues. And you've got, I don't know, you've got Delta Blues and Electric Blues and Urban Blues. Um, and we'll have a, a link uh, in the show notes to two different genres lists, the one that Doug mentioned earlier, and a very long list that Gracenote uses. Gracenote's the company that provides the tag information for the iTunes store when you rip a CD. And they have about 20 blues genres. Um, Alternative has about 30 or 40. Classical has nearly 100. I'm telling you, my inner geek is going, oh, I, oh, 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 I've got to label all my files. I've got to get everything precisely just the way Gracenote has it. And, and then the reasonable part of me says, but does it really make that much difference? I mean, the, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The only genres I care about are Christmas and holidays, so I can segment, <laughs> segment those songs out of my normal library with, with relative ease. But everything else, it's only just the genre to me is just an interesting tidbit about the song. It's not necessarily uh, an organizing taxonomy. Okay, so for me, again, as I mentioned, smart playlists, I, I create my own custom genres. Now, you can do this in iTunes just by typing in a genre in the genre field. So I have a genre called Dead for Music by the Grateful Dead, its solo, its members' solo projects, etc. I have a Dylan genre for all my Dylan albums because if I put them all in rock, I mean, with all the regular CDs and bootlegs, you know, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I do the same thing with Frank Zappa. He's in the Zappa category. See? Um, He's hard to categorize for one thing, but I mean, he crosses over so many genres, rock, jazz, blues, classical. I mean, yeah, where, where do you put Dylan? Do you put him in rock? Do you put him in folk? Do you put him in... Exactly. Um, Great American Songbook for his last two albums. So you can't. Yeah, do I think that. there are probably we could probably name a few artists that are, are cross genre like that that really deserve their own. Um, you know. Well, the Grateful own. Dead go from everything from psychedelic rock to to acoustic, acoustic folk to rhythm and blues to space jazz. Uh, sure. Miles Davis, would you call all of his music jazz? You know, you get up to In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew and, and it's fusion, and then his later stuff is closer to Muzak. Actually, his last few albums. So, so the genre is a convenience. The, the point is that you can use it to organize your library. Now, I, I'm going to put in the show notes a link to an article I wrote in 2013, how the over-genrefication of music is bad for listeners and musicians. 
Um, and I wrote this article in response to three things. Emails from people asking how they can apply multiple genres or subgenres to their music. So, for instance, we were just saying Zappa, Dylan, Grateful Dead. They don't fit in a genre. You may want multiple genres for, for a given song or album. Um, browsing stations in iTunes, what was called iTunes Radio at the time, I was amazed by some of the genres that were listed. And then I was reading a music magazine online, and I saw the mention of a genre called lo-fi, which I had never heard of. It's kind of confusing when you're reading about music to see some of these genre names that mean absolutely nothing. And remember, this is three years ago, so some of these are passe already. Um, Lo-fi, dubstep, downtempo, new gaze, spelled N-U, grindcore, alt-folk. I mean, WTF, what do any of these things mean? Now, there, there is one good sub-genre label, and I'm very glad that iTunes uses it. It's smooth jazz. It ensures <laughs> that I will come nowhere near it, that if I ever see a smooth jazz iTunes radio station, I will certainly not listen to it. But yeah. what does alternative mean? Is Radiohead still alternative? Coldplay? Yeah, there's a subjectivity to it, and that's one of the reasons why I don't um, keep all my music in lockstep with with uh, genre tagging, you know, there's also a tendency to overdo the genre stratification. Um, that Grace Note genre list is an example. But I know uh, some taggers go to elaborate lengths to categorize and subgenre their libraries. Um, I know, for instance, that you have a, a, an unconventional system. All my classical music is labeled classical colon and then subgenre. Um, for two reasons. One, I would rather browse for, say, piano recordings or operas um, when I'm looking for something to listen to. And also, it makes it easier for me to have smart playlists that eliminate anything that includes classical in the genre name. You know, it's a funny thing. You can't search by genre in iTunes. You can't. No, Which is, you can only search by song name, artist, and album name. Yeah, and it's kind of weird that you can't do that. That would Well, I guess you could well, use the column browser. you can browser. use the use column, column browser. browser, yeah. That, that does it. So it, it seems to me that genres have become a kind of a statement, that a band comes out with a slightly new type of music and they give it a genre name to set themselves apart. Then other bands emulate them and they follow it. Do, do you remember when the genre name post-rock came out? It's bands like Sigur Ross and Mogway, Explosions in the Sky, groups like that. I mean, post-rock? You know, it, it sounds like a really twee marketing term that doesn't help anyone who's trying to discover music. Whereas, if anything, the genre should be an avenue toward discovery. Well, I think that's right. If you like one artist who's hip hop, then presumably you will like other artists that are hip hop or the same with pop or the same with rock and roll. Um, and maybe that's why the uh, Grace Note list is so stratified. It's just to to help identify a certain kinds of music within a genre, within a genre, within a genre. Now, whether that's part of, of, of the marketing end of the business or whether that's something that you can do on your own. Well, I suppose you can. You can you've made those decisions yourself about altering the genres. I, I have because, so with classical music, there are essentially two ways you can organize it if you want to create subgenres. One is by form, uh, sonata, uh, an opera, a symphony, etc., And the other is by era, so Baroque, classical, modern, etc. I find I, I sort of overlap in my choices. So I have an early music genre, um, and I have a keyboard genre, and then I have a minimalism genre because I have a lot of minimalist classical music, which is technically 20th and 21st century, but it's a particular style. So sometimes I'm looking at an instrumentation. Sometimes I'm looking at a style. It's just the way I think about music. 
I, I think genres are useful for people who care and who want to approach music in that direction. When you have a large library, you need a, a way to get into it. You need a door to open that you can access things. My, my son is very much interested in what's called EDM, electronic dance music. He doesn't put genre labels on any of his music. He doesn't care. Right. He just remembers the artists. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the way I am. Like I said, if it, except for Christmas and holiday, I really don't care what the genre is. It's an interesting tidbit about the track, but I don't depend so much on it because my my non-classical library is fairly homogenous. I mean, I've got some jazz in there and I've got, you know, folk and I've got <laughs> rock and lots of different and variations of all of those. But I don't manipulate genre tags at all. That's not to say that I'm ignorant. I'm not a musical ignoramus. It's just that I don't use them to, uh, to segregate my library. I mean, I mentioned the uh, freeform radio station that I worked at. And uh, when it came to the point in the show where I'd have to play a jazz fusion song, I'd better know that I could play uh, Miles Davis and not the Beatles or Parliament. Or Yeah, but only from about 1969 on. Miles Davis? Well, yeah. You couldn't play Kind of Blue in the fusion category. No, that would be, I don't know, jazz, I suppose. That would be jazz. I should, Actually, call, I should call that music director and ask him if he ever did any more with that format because it was really a great format. But anyway. Yeah, it's a good idea. It does force you to have a lot of variety. Yeah, it was a fun station. Um, I think technically Kind of Blue is hard bop, and I've never understood the difference between hard bop and whatever else. All right, now maybe I am an ignoramus. Now, I know what bebop is, but I, I have never heard the term hard bop. Is there a soft bop? It's like fast fusion. Is fast fusion, <laughs> is there soft fusion, medium fusion? Is there a soft bop? Well, there's post bop. There's gypsy jazz. There's... Contemporary jazz, there's general contemporary jazz, and there's smooth jazz with two subgenres, pop jazz and smooth jazz instrumental. There is a oh, special circle of hell for people who make smooth jazz music. Oh, no, 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 no. They're just musicians. They all come from good homes and good families, just making a living. Well, it's, su it's surprisingly popular. Yeah. So, yeah. so here's, here's a good example. Um, smooth jazz, and sorry if any listeners are fans of smooth jazz, is basically for people who don't like music. They just want that sort of wallpaper effect. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but, you know, it's a product. It's a thing. It's, but, it's but, legitimate. But calling genre. something smooth jazz will attract those people because they want some new wallpaper. Yeah, okay. Call it like what? Light jazz? Jazz light? No, but no. Using the term smooth jazz oh. will attract people that like that kind of music. So when they want new wallpaper... Oh, it's like new age. Look, like when you say new age, it's like exactly. it's a certain sort of uh, kind of overproduced, just crank it up. Uh, well, so New Age included back in the day things like, remember George Winston, the pianist? Oh, yeah. He wasn't New Age at all. He was just sold by a record label, Celestial Harmonies, right. that was New Age. Right. Um, Harold Budd is often classified as New Age. And, you know, he worked, he's worked with Brian Eno and John Fox and all sorts of other people. I'd call his music ambient. Um, these days, they're calling that kind of stuff neoclassical. Oh. The, the point is, genre is a marketing term. Um, you can make up your own genres. For your own music, if you want to organize it that way, great for smart playlists. But other than that, it's gotten to the point where there's just too many genres and subgenres. And when you have something called Dream Pop and Shoegazer, <laughs> it's like, I give up. Are those, are those in the Grace Note list? That's in the Grace Note list, oh, yeah. Man. Okay. Maybe we're just old fuddies and we don't even know what the, that genre is. That's maybe possible, maybe but we're both people with large music libraries who need to know how the music fits in some way or another. And, yep. and think about it. When you sign up for Apple Music, it asks you to choose some genres and some artists. Now, iTunes, the iTunes Store only has about two dozen genres. Um, they're broad genres. You know, I found that whole experience, um, clicking on those limited number of bubbles, 
very unsatisfying. I just did not like having to do that. Yeah, and so if you look in the iTunes store, you've got genres which include things like essentials, and I'm not sure how that's a genre. That's more of a sort of a collection. Fitness and workout is not a genre. Um, and then you've got indie, you've got jazz, you've got K-pop. They don't have New Age anymore. They used to. They have new artists. They have singer-songwriter. And how is that different from folk? Well, they don't have folk anymore. They used to have folk. We um, posted an article on the Next Track website a couple of weeks ago about YouTube users who are generating new uh, genre names because the ones that we have now don't really work. What they're finding is that they're categorizing YouTube videos based on the activity that they're doing. So uh, fitness and workout is not an unusual genre because that's what they're using the music for. They're looking at it from a, 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 another dimension. It's like, what am I going to use this music for? It's elevator music. It's wallpaper. It's work background. It's while I'm having a barbecue. Yeah, music for babies and relaxing background music are a couple of the ones that, that show up here in this article. Um, I, I'm sure I've mentioned on the show already the classical music for elevators um, playlist on Apple Music, which is kind of, I guess there's some sort of irony in it, but well, yes, it's ironic. It's 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 a joke because it's elevator music. Like well, music. it's it's music. Yeah, but that's a trademark term. So right, but they're calling it music for elevators because it sounds like the music you'd hear at a dentist's office who is listening to the local pop classical station. I know my dentist does. He's got, my dentist listens to Radio Three, which is the classical station over here. Right, but for the uninitiated, if I saw a playlist that was called music for elevators, I'd kind of expected I'd be hearing a lot of Pachelbel's Canon and Moonlight Sonata and Bolero and and things of that ilk, rather than it diving too far. Anyway. So genres are useful for some people. For others, they don't care. If you're a genre obsessive, drop us a line from our website. We have a contact form. We'd love to hear some of the more interesting genres that are in your music libraries. Um, as Doug has a Zappa genre, and I have a Dead and a Dylan genre. Is there any type of music that you have segregated into its own genre? We have a comment section on each episode page, so you can contact us that way, too. Before we take off, this is the part of the show where we like to tell you what our next tracks are going to be. That is the music that we'll be playing uh, at home. Uh, I've chosen Bobby Whitlock's Where There's a Will, There's a Way, the ABC Dunhill collection from 1972. If Bobby Whitlock sounds remotely familiar, he's the keyboard player from Derek and the Dominoes, but he also did a lot of work with George Harrison and Delaney and Bonnie. He put out uh, four solo albums. This particular collection is two his first two albums that were produced respectively by Glyn Johns and Jimmy Miller, who were both incredibly prolific producers at the time. So it's got a, a period sound, but that's also because um, Eric Clapton and George Harrison and other musicians affiliated with them are also on this album. It sounds a lot like Derek and the Dominoes, except it's got more Bobby Whitlock in it. He was a guy from Memphis. He was much more into soul. So it's got a very soulful, gospely, bluesy feel to it. Uh, it is called Where There's a Will, There's a Way, the ABC Dunhill Collection from Bobby Whitlock. Kirk, what have you got? My next track this week is an extremely well-known album. In fact, one of the best-known classical albums ever recorded. It's Glenn Gould's 1981 recording of Box Goldberg Variations. Now, in the same way that if people own one single jazz album, it's likely to be Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, if people own one single classical album, it's likely to be this one. The reason I'm picking it is some months ago, 
Um, I got the recently remastered Glenn Gould, the Complete Columbia Album Collection box set. It has 81 CDs. It's all of Gould's recordings. And, well, I moved house. It was packed up. And I took it out a couple days ago and I started listening. And I kind of just flipped through it random and picked out a couple of discs. And I ended up with this one. And, you know, I, I have 25 recordings of the Goldberg Variations. Yes, that's what I do. And I think this one is... The, the one that that gives the best message of what the music really says. Um, Gould's style was unique. He was recognized as a genius from his very first recording in 1955 of the Goldberg Variations. So his musical career was bookended by two recordings of the same work. And this 1981 recording is a fitting testament. Um, it was his last album that was released. He died in 82 of a stroke. Coming back to it after not having listened to it for a year or two, it's just, it's refreshing. It's just, it's the music the way, it's this piece the way it should sound. So listen to Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg Variations. And if you've never heard it, um, you owe yourself to check it out. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.